Moon Pig. Hello world and welcome to the Moon Pig Tech Podcast. My name is Richard. And I am Jacob. And uh, today this is our, our first podcast that we're recording uh, entirely from home and remotely uh, due to the pandemic. We hope you're all uh, keeping safe. We are, uh, obviously, by staying here. Um, today we're going to be talking about the past, the present and the future of our data platform. And I'm delighted to welcome our VP of Engineering, Gordon Pretorius. Hello, Gordon. Hey, guys. It's good to be here. Well, welcome. Um, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, um, sure thing. My name is Gordon. I think, as you've heard, VP of Engineering for Moonpig. Um, been at the company for about two years now. Um, we've done a lot in that space, which has been really interesting. And I think um, building out a new data platform was one of those, which we'll obviously talk about today. Uh, previously, I was head of data systems over at Just Eat. Spent about just under three years there. And then before that, worked for a whole bunch of agencies in London, kind of doing, you know, ad hoc projects for various different clients and stuff. So pretty much being a software developer or in software for most of my career. So what do you do when you don't dive through data all day long? Ah, good question. Um, I'm, I'm a father of two, so, you know, two little ones. So that pretty much takes a <laughs> majority of my time. I think I lost any personal time about, what, two, two and a half, three years ago. Um, <laughs> if I think about spare time, so I think me and the wife, we run a non-profit organization. So, you know, she's a special needs teacher. We've got a non-profit org that we started up called Little Steps. Um, and what that basically is, is designing kind of assessment systems for special needs schools and stuff. So, you know, any spare capacity we've got, we kind of throw ourselves at that. If I'm not doing that, I'm going for runs. You know, I've got a Labrador. Um, you know, that's pretty much the only man time I've got left. So <laughs> we tend to go run quite often. I mean, if if time permits, maybe do some mountain biking and stuff, but mostly just family, friends, you know, use up that time best as I can. That's great. That's great. Awesome. You, you actually put me to shame. Um, it sounds like a very noble side project that you have there, whereas I just spend my time trying to make video games. I think video games are pretty cool. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. it's something we've got an overlapping passion on, you know, so we just thought whatever spare time we've got, we're working on it. It's something we're quite proud of. Um, it's not massive, but it's just something. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, it's still very cool. Yeah. Um, so, so perhaps we can start the conversation um, by just explaining what a data platform actually is. Oh, good Lord. That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a data platform... I guess there's various definitions for it, right? Like similar with big data. If you think about big data, what is big data? You know, what at what point do you go from just being normal data to big data? And you know, I think you heard some really good descriptions out there. I think anything you can't fit in Excel automatically just becomes big data. Um, in my world, at least, the way I best describe it, I think at the point where you start needing a data platform is where you kind of dealing with data in a space that it's not all sitting in one location. You know, if you kind of in a position where you're running a monolith and pretty much all of your transactional data is sitting in, an, you know, in a, a database or a SQL database of some kind, you probably don't need a data platform as such. You, know, you might need a bit of a data warehouse or something along those lines. The second you start thinking about data coming from multiple different sources, so take GA data, for example, you've got third-party data, you've got your logging and you know, tracing data, you've got your transactional data. The second you want to start bringing in data from all of these different platforms, that's where, that's where you start needing a data platform type capability. And that's typically how I classify that, you know, because there's a very different skills and tools required to pull that data together, make, create meaning out of it, and then, you know, kind of passing it on for analysis, etc. Great. Yeah, that makes, makes sense. Um, so when, when did we identify that we needed one at Moonpig? Um, I think it was, 
it started about if I think about a year ago, maybe just over a year and a half ago. Um, I think we're we're very much still part of the group at this stage. So you know, Moonpeak was part of the Photobox group. Um, being part of the Photobox group, we were very reliant on a centralized data function. And I think you know, a centralized data function it had to cater for five other companies within the group. So obviously, their time and priority was split amongst all five of those companies. Um, and some of the kind of pain points that we experienced because of that was. You know, some of the kind of typical things you'd expect is like data accuracy and reliability was typically a problem. You know, we quite often get kind of failed runs or reports weren't reflecting the right data. And we had to go back to the team and say, hey guys, you know, what's what's happening here? Um, it was a bit of a black box. Uh, you know, we didn't, we knew what data was going into this process, but, you know, once we went into this process, it was pretty much a black box. It was, um, there was no real documentation around it. We didn't really have any insights into how that data was transformed. All we just got was an output. You know, so when we ask questions of like, okay, how was this data get from A to B? You couldn't really answer that, which is problematic. Um, some of the other problems was change was slow. You know, we got to a point where we couldn't really influence the roadmap um, of the, the centralized data team, which is problematic. You know, we wanted to add new things and kind of move forward and accelerate at a pace you know, different to the other companies. Uh, and that was challenging, right? Because again, like I said, there's competing priorities and it's tough in that space. And I think when you start getting to a space where your analysts start building out their own kind of engineering capabilities in their own EC2 instances in kind of AWS stuff, you know, when they start kind of looking to do their own thing because they just can't use the existing platform, that's probably a massive kind of warning sign that, look, yeah, we need to rethink mm-hmm. this because A, that's not their skill set, and B, we're just building out legacy or something, yeah, which you know, there's a lot of technical debt which we're going to have to pay back at some point. So how do we do this properly from the word go? So we started experiencing a lot of those kind of symptoms which made us go, okay, you know, now it's probably the right time to start thinking about building out our own capabilities when it comes to the data platform. Okay. Okay. Um, is, is it worth just just sort of um, expanding maybe a little bit on the scope of the data? So to, what, what do we use it for? Um, why is it important that we have access to it in a reliable way? Yeah, I mean, great question, right? So I think... From our point of view, if we look at Moonpig, probably where we were a year ago, it's very much our usage of the data was very operational. You know, we were we're an e-commerce provider, so you know, I think just having a, a good enough view of what our kind of business metrics or sales performance looks like is obviously critical for our day-to-day operations. So that was the primary use of our data. But we also do a lot of the performance side of things. So we run the factories that do a lot of the printing, that do a lot of the performance, and you know the logistics side of things. So it's also really kind of key for us to have insights into that space, you know, how we're performing in that space, what's gone out, what hasn't gone out, you know, where do we have inefficiencies in the pipeline, et cetera, et cetera. So I think historically we were very dependent on data for a very operational aspect. I think part of, you know, thinking about a new data platform is how do we start thinking, you know, more sophisticated, how do we start thinking up more sophisticated needs for our data. You know, how do we start using it to do proper trend analysis across, you know, different segments or different um, cohorts of customers? Yeah, how do we start doing more strategic decisions based on insights that we can gather from data? You know, how do we start leveraging data in a more sophisticated manner? Um, is ideally something we want to strive for. So, you know, hence we started thinking about the new data platform and that also being a driver for why we do this. Great. So you, you you told us a few of like the symptoms you were seeing that there's something just not quite right about how we're dealing with our data and how we're like dealing with our analytics. So what is the first step or what was one of the first steps for like you and our team to go like, okay, this, this isn't right. We have a system that just doesn't work for us anymore. 
what are kind of like the first steps or the vision that you created to where do you want to work towards? How do you see this like working in the future? And what are the steps that you can actually take in order to get there? Yeah, I, another great question, right? I think from our point of view, the one thing I leveraged quite heavily in the space was previous experience, right? You know, coming from my previous company, I, I'd, I'd gone through this process at scale, you know, only a year prior. And I'd just come to the end of that project. And, you know, there was a lot of learnings and stuff that I had from that. So I think part of a lot of, you know, how we thought about this process and what we wanted to do going forward was, you know, kind of my experience going, okay, guys, well, this is what I've seen work well. This is what we, you know, seen that doesn't work well. Maybe we should do a combination of this. Given our budget, given the time, I think we should do this as an approach. So effectively, how we went about this is we sat down with the centralized data team. We sat down with the photo box um, engineers. And I think together, we kind of came up with a plan and saying, okay, guys, if we could rethink what our data architecture should look like from the ground up, what would that be? And, you know, that's where I leveraged a lot of the previous experience. We had discussions about it. I was able to kind of bring, you know, some of the trade-offs to the table, some of the some of the kind of decisions that we'd made previously and the benefits that they produce um, and talk through that, right, and provide the right justification and say, look, if we go down this approach, it yields this benefit, which is um, which is always great, right? When you get to leverage experience um, rather than just trying to read out there what the industry is doing, it's very helpful. So we sat down with those various different teams. We came up with a model that we thought would work quite well. And then the next step was to go and sit down with our head of analytics um, and to sit down with various different stakeholders and just go, okay, guys, if we do... Th- think about building out this new data platform how do we justify this like what are the you know what are the use cases that are going to help us kind of quantify the benefits in what we're trying to build and we went through the kind of process of identifying those and then once we had an overall plan from an engineering point of view and we had justification you know and we had stakeholder kind of buying we then took it to the ceo and said hey guys this is what we're thinking this is how much it's going to cost and then yeah the project was pretty much kicked off from there so so you've built out um a team to support this um, initiative to build the platform. What, what does that team look like? What's the makeup of a, a data platform team? Uh, it, it's just trying to think this one through quite carefully. So it's one of those questions which we, we we had a better view of at the start of it. And I think as things have evolved, we've kind of changed our thinking a bit, right? You know, in the beginning, kind of the way we viewed it is that we've got we've got this data engineering capability and then there's this, this we've got our analytics capability which you know we had previously and has always existed at Moonbeam. so we had data engineering we had analytics the missing piece there that we've never you know that's always been a very difficult kind of space to fill simply because it's not a data engineering role and it's not an analyst role is the data architecture side of things now i call it data architecture because that's probably one of the best titles we've got for it but in actual fact like we're still kind of going through and working out what that role title is. You know, some of the other titles we're playing with is analytical engineer or, um, you know, just data modeler. But essentially, when we think about our data, we've got all this raw data coming in. Someone needs to take the responsibility of kind of modeling out those core domain layers as such. So kind of taking the ownership of a data architect or responsible for modeling out the core data architecture that is then used by the analyst. So in, you know, in our current view, we see the data platform team as consisting of this data engineering capability and this data architecture capability. And then our analytics team is analysts and data visualization experts. So what, what do you mean when you say like creating like different data models, right? When you think about what is the data that we have coming in, we have like, I guess, classic e-commerce data and we have data of like who clicks on what and which sites do users visit or like which pages do users navigate to on our apps. 
right? So we, I guess we have like relatively standard website and app data. So yeah, what's the idea behind it? Like, or what is then a data model of building different data models? What does that entail? Yeah, so that's so. If you think about, let's take a really simple one, right? Like, because we're in a e-com business, we deal with orders. We deal with orders quite a lot. So, an order would be a particular domain. Now, from a transactional point of view, we've got all the transactional, you know, kind of metadata or data we can attach to that order domain. So, for example, when was the order created? You know, what was the price paid for the order, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know that, that that's that's very limited in terms of what you can actually do with that domain. If you think about how you extend on that domain, you can then start bringing in other data sources to enrich that domain. So if we think about, let's say we bring in our GA data, we can then suddenly start identifying, okay, this person that placed this order, like who were they? You know, what was their what was their shopping behavior look like? Was it the fifth time or the hundredth time they visited the website? And you can start enriching that one particular domain, I order, with all of this additional data, which then you know if you think about you know, providing that to data science analysts or, you know, uh, data visualization experts, they can then start using that to do much more interesting insights and analysis. So similar to customer. Sorry. So would it be fair to say, basically, you now look at all your different sources and you start picking relevant data for each of them into like one cohesive view that enables you to have a better view of what is going on or what is your customer's behavior and how you can drive that or improve it. Correct, 100%. So it's, it's a really good summarization of it. Um, so the, the kind of core ones we'd be dealing with is customers, you know, orders would be a good one, product would be a good example. So using those key domains, you then see how you can, you then see how you can attach all the associated data you've got with that into those um, core domains as such. And I'm not saying that, you know, our data platform is limited to those domains only. You can obviously expand on that. There can be other domains that are much smaller and much more specialized. Um, but in terms of core, those are the ones you focus on. Cool. So, so you've got a team, you've got a plan. Um, what was your approach to actually uh, get this stuff started and built? Yeah. So, again, leveraging some of my previous experience here, um, I, I kind of call it the five S model. <laughs> it's cheesy as hell, but um, <laughs> when, we, when we think about an engineering project, right? It's, it's the, the three first S's are almost no-brainers, right? You know, you, you're talking about scalability. We want to build something that's scalable makes perfect sense. Um, sustainability, again, we, we don't want to be incurring technical debt as we go and in two years time finding out we have to re-platform. You always gonna have to re-platform at some stage, but we want to try and build something that is as sustainable as possible for as long as possible. Um, and the last one was secure, right? You know, given the current kind of focus on data and privacy and everything else, like from the ground up, we just had to think about security as one of our core kind of tenants in approaching this project. So that's three of the S's covered. I think fundamentally the most important was the next two S's for us, right? Which is self-service. The self-service side of things is, in my opinion, what makes or breaks a data platform. The self-service side of things is what really enables a data-driven decision-making kind of capability within any organization. You know, the self-service side of things is what takes, it was what enables the growth that you need to, the growth and pace that you need to see teams move at within a modern day data organization is in my personal opinion. So, so what do you mean by self-service then? Um, it does it does sound like it's really important, but is it is it about consuming the data? Is it about providing the data? Um, and what does it actually look like? No, yeah, I should probably elaborate on that one a bit more. Um, so from a self-service point of view, right? It, the biggest challenge that I've seen in previous organizations speaking to peers in the industry is that data platform teams naturally have a tendency to become a bottleneck. You know, it's 
because of the dependency and the rate of change, they're naturally always going to sit in that space. So when you look at data coming in, there's going to be a bottleneck around that simply because there's so much data to ingest and to, you know, alter and change your processes to adapt to bringing that data in. And at the same time, you know, getting data out, the analysts want to move at quite a quick pace. They're going to be asking for new data. There's a lot of kind of, you know, overhead in being able to modify your process and stuff to be able to produce that data. And that's if you think about it from a very traditional aspect. What we wanted to do is be in a space where we just focused on building our core capabilities and tooling, which enables self-service at both an ingestion, transformation, and kind of data visualization aspect. So teams have the ability to self-serve their own requirements, and then the data platform team acts more as a governance function on top of that. In doing that, you kind of enable the, you know, you enable teams to move at their own pace and their own velocity, which I think is super critical. And I think overall, what you then tend to see is the feedback loop between making changes and the communication between analysts and engineers reduce quite drastically. And the second that feedback loop is reduced, that's when you start seeing data-driven you know, capabilities surface quite rapidly. And I think, I think I guess that links very nicely to actually one of our first episodes. Was it the first episode where we talked to two of our uh, product managers um, and we talked a bit about kind of like this idea of like using A-B testing to identify what is better than other solutions. But also often I, I see it in, in my team where we come up with an idea and that idea is based on an assumption of like, oh, do users behave that way? Do users not behave that way? Do we have a really high drop off at this point? Right. And if we now have to go to a data team, that is the bottleneck and it takes us five days to get an answer to that or even longer, right? Then that, as you said, like that's a relatively long feedback loop. But I guess if if all the teams can look at the data in the way they need to identify if assumptions are correct or incorrect, I guess that also falls into that area then. Yeah, and to be honest, like I think if, if there's a key takeaway from any of this, I think this is probably one of the most fundamental points, right? Like from what I've seen previously, you'd, you'd have a... You'd have an analyst sitting there asking a question, right? And so let's, for example, say to answer that question, they needed fields A, B, and C, which didn't currently exist in the data space. The, the natural course then would be to go and speak to the data platform team. The data platform team would go, well, we don't have that data, so let's talk to the engineering team. Go and talk to the engineering team. They would then go and talk to the engineering team. Engineering team would say, guys, we've got a backlog. You know, it's going to take forever to make a change. Point is, three, four, five, six months later, it's not uncommon to finally see that change materialize. You know, and if you think about that kind of as a feedback loop, it, it is so difficult to then accelerate and be truly data-driven because most of the time you're asking questions around data that you don't have yet. Mm. So changing that up, you know, turning that into a space where if an analyst has a question, they go and talk to an engineer and the engineer says, yeah, we can quite quickly add that because the process or, you know, the, the, the governance around it is so good that that change is really quick. Um, and can accelerate through the pipeline. So you're talking about a day turnaround in terms of seeing that data actually visible in the pipeline for the analyst to be able to query on top of. That's when you start seeing rapid change and acceleration happening. You know, that's when you can almost run a test, see the experiment, iterate. You know, you can run 20, 30, 40 iterations in the time span that it used to take to run one. And that's where the drastic difference comes in. That's where that, that feedback loop really drives a data-driven culture. Mm-hmm. Is, is it worth talking about how much data we have? Um, you know, how, how big is our big data? Um, 
bigger than can fit into an Excel spreadsheet. So <laughs> <laughs> definitely, got, definitely got some big data to start with. Um, it's interesting, right? Because I think our data platforms have only been running for a few months now, um, the phase one of it at least. So I don't think we're at the scale yet that it's going to be astronomically surprising to many people. But, you know, if I just do a quick comparison, so look at where we were previously versus where we're at today. So our previous platform had about five years worth of ingestions and everything else, and also had multiple other company data and everything else included. Like we were one of five other companies. So previously, I think, you know, looking at our largest table was 1.6 terabytes in storage, so 19 billion rows, um, whereas today our largest table is 900 gigs but um, and has 11 billion rows. So the fact that we managed to accumulate that in a matter of months, you know, kind of creates a really unique projection in terms of we'll probably be two to three years from now. And I think we're scaling and growing quite quickly in this space. Some other interesting things is, you know, our largest table previously was 19 billion rows, whereas today our largest table is 26 billion rows. So we've already surpassed that, you know, that previous metric just because of the ease of ingestion and, you know, the kind of self-service capabilities around it has allowed us to grow that quickly. Other things which might be more interesting is total rows. Previously, we had 172 billion. You know, right now across our data platform, we've got 230 billion rows across all our tables. So again, we've so, surpassed that metric, which is interesting. So that's multiple companies in multiple years compared to one company in a few months. Correct. So do you think there's such a thing as too much data? Yes, I, I, <laughs> I definitely do, right? And I think, again, this probably ties back to one of the principles in which we use to build this, to build this platform out, right? So I think traditionally, and if you look at very traditional pipelines, you know, there was a big kind of process around where you focus on the extraction of the data. So you go to all your various different sources, extract that data. You then build out a lot of transformation logic. So using, you know, to, you know either enterprise type tooling, or you'd use programming languages such as Python, but the point is you'd build out your transformations at that point, and then you'd go and load that data into your warehouse. The reason being that warehouses were quite expensive, you know, to run and maintain. So you had to be very careful about the amount of data you put in there, and you had to be very careful about the structure of the data you put in there. So the point is you do a lot of your aggregation, you do a lot of your enrichment during that transformation there. We've opted for a, a different solution, which we've seen, you know, which we've done previously, but that we've seen become quite popular amongst the industry simply because of the tooling that's become available. Rather than doing your transformation of that layer, we focus on doing the extraction from the various different data sources. We then load that data as is raw into our, you know, into our warehousing solution. So in this case, Snowflake. Um, and the reason being that storing that data is relatively inexpensive, right? You know, cloud storage is very, very cost effective. And in the grand scale of things is a fraction of the cost of our overall expenditure. So we store all of our data and then what we choose to actually process on, that's where we can have a bit more of a considered approach. So the reality is we can pull in as much data as we like. What we then choose to process and analyze and actually transform into something meaningful is then a considered approach that we can take and discuss in terms of use case benefits, um, you know, pros, cons, etc. Which means we can ingest, you know, like you said, there's not really a limit on how much data we can bring in. So I don't think we run into the risk of bringing in too much data, but we do run the risk of processing unnecessary data. And I think just having all the data there and being able to make that choice or defer that decision to a later stage is quite useful. And is it also because processing power is, is expensive or at least more expensive than, than storage? Yeah, considerably more, right? Like we've, we've, you've got to be quite considerate about what data you want to process where. If you decide to process everything, you really should be asking the question like how much value is this providing because right now you know that kind of processing is still quite expensive and you should have the business cases kind of justifying the need for it 
Okay, so, so so you mentioned there that the ingestion of the data is pretty much raw. So you just pull it, you just pull it in as it's given to you, and just store it as it's given right. to you. Um, and then you run, uh, or you select what kind of transformations you're going to run across that data. Um, how does that work then? So is that is that a run like query time, or is it run through jobs, or or based on events, or something like that? Yeah. No. So the, again, when we try to design this transformation layer, we wanted to make it as self-service as possible, right? This is probably where I think one of the key aspects of the data platform, you know, enables the most self-serve, if you will. So when we've got all this raw data sitting there, we wanted to create a very easy mechanism for anyone to be able to contribute towards the transformation space. You know, our data architecture kind of capability within the team would be doing most of the transformations. But again, there's nothing, we didn't want to stop an engineer or an analyst or anyone coming to the table and saying, hey guys, uh, there's this raw data sitting in, you know, in table A, B, or C. I'd like to include this in the following transforms that I can create a domain and then build some cool visualizations off that. So we wanted to enable that process as much as possible. Now, if we went down a route of using you know, custom code like Python or using enterprise tooling to do that, that makes that process really difficult because there's a, there's a skill set you need to learn. There's a lot of documentation you need to put around that. It's, it's a very difficult kind of, it's not something you expect everyone to know or understand. So what we've opted for is using a language that almost everyone across the board that would be involved in the space understands, and that's SQL, right? Everyone to some extent understands SQL. Some people are definitely more proficient at it, but as an initial barrier to entry, that's by far one of the smallest. So using SQL and something as simple as Git, you know, we wanted to enable anyone to be able to write transformations and then use Git as the mechanism to do PR requests on top of that and to apply some kind of governance over, governance over the transformations that we're doing. So a combination of those two technologies is what we're ideally after. Um, we did a lot of exploration in the space and there's a, tooling, there's a tooling that came about about a year ago called DBT. And DBT pretty much is exactly this, right? It allows you to use Git and they've created a bit of a, a slight tweak on the SQL you know, programming syntax, but it allows you to build kind of um, queries on top of queries and you can reference those queries, etc. But using this technology, it kind of satisfied all our requirements and it allowed that self-service capability. So we're using DBT quite heavily for our transformation layer. In fact, we're using it for all of our transformation layer. And how we trigger that is we're using DBT Cloud. Um, DBT Cloud gives you the ability to schedule different jobs at different transforms at different times. Um, so we just, we, we're currently using that mechanism. Uh, as far as I understand, the teams are building our capabilities at the moment to build in additional event-based triggers, et cetera. Cool, makes sense. Um, I guess guess one thing that sort of jumped out at me there is, and it, it's, I think it must be an interesting challenge and I'd be very curious as to how you've, you've solved it, is that you've got data coming from many different sources um, and then it's being ingested by a separate team and potentially transformed by a separate team. So there's two challenges there, I think. One is keeping up with the rate of change in that data. So there's going to always be new sources of data and new things coming through. Um, but secondly, also the integrity of the data um, and, and understanding what, what things mean. So how, how, do you, how do you manage that across a distributed system like this? Yeah, that can really be challenging at times, right? And again, the more governance we apply over this and the more constraint we put over it, the slower you know, we kind of reduce the rates of change for everybody else. So ideally, we want to avoid doing this as much as possible, but at the same time, we've got to be very sensible about how we think about our data, especially because of privacy concerns, right? Someone could be piping in data into our platform, which contains a ton of PII, which suddenly gets exposed to everyone else, right? So we've got to think very carefully about how we do this. Um, so some of the th stuff we've come up with 
and thinking about and implementing um, in this space. So when data comes into the platform, again, we, we, we're creating a very simple mechanism to get data into the platform. Um, right now, we're working with the teams to kind of build out event-based ingestions, etc. But the point is, when that data comes in, we ask the question, like, is this sensitive data or not? If it's sensitive data, it gets stored to a very separate part of the system, which has very limited access. So this will be your customer data. Um, and we're currently building out kind of you know, ML capabilities that randomly scan sample sets of data coming in to kind of check, look, yeah, is there actually any sensitive data in here that it hasn't been flagged sensitive? If so, automatically move it into the sensitive area of our warehouse. Um, PII is, I guess, personally identifiable information? Yes, correct. And you say that basically goes into a separate storage, a separate zone, like a high security zone where not everyone can just like waddle in and look around. Correct. So in terms of nice. managing the overall integrity of the data, right? Um, there's two approaches here. We're, the one approach is where we're at right now, and then there's a version that we're building towards. The version that we have right now is when data comes in, we apply a very strict transformation on that data. What that means is that transformation ha has a bunch of assumptions in it, right? It assumes that there's certain fields and it assumes that there's a certain structure of that data. If that data structure changes and there's a breaking change, then the transform would fail and naturally the downstream teams would get notified, you know, and we could then self-correct and kind of fix that. That's that's kind of the V1 version of this. The V2 version of this is where we use some kind of a schema registry um, or schema store to give teams the ability to automatically update their schemas. And based on those updates, you know, the system kind of evolves to then adapt to the new changing needs of, the, of that data. So if, for example, you add an additional field to your payload, the idea then being that the, in the table which you do the transformation, that field can then just be referenced and pulled through without needing to change any scripts or transforms or anything like that. Okay. And, and how about the um, understanding or interpretation of the data, though? So you're getting a bunch of fields coming through from um, domain A and another bunch of fields from domain B. How, how do you, in this separate distributed system, understand how those things relate to each other and correctly interpret the data that they're presenting to you? Yeah, so this is where we use a combination of core capabilities from Snowflake. So... I mean, we went through a very meticulous process of identifying what do we want to use as a data warehouse provider. And I think Snowflake really shined through for us for a few reasons. One being the, the, the documentation, the commenting system on it's really strong. It's really good. Like even at a field level, you can provide, you know, comments around the particular field, the type, the source, the origin, everything else, which we leverage quite extensively. So when we have a new raw table represented within our warehouse that's from source A, B or C, we'll then go through and document that data. So whilst I'm querying and looking at data and exploring it within the Snowflake environment, that data is commented and I can see all the raw tables. There's documentation around the core tables, et cetera, et cetera. So we leverage that comment slash documentation component quite heavily. Um, I guess the other reason, the other thing to mention just around Snowflake, why we chose it is when we're bringing data in, we also get to store that data in a semi-structured format, so JSON. So it doesn't necessarily need to be tabular and represented as a tabular structure, meaning we can be a lot more you know, freeform about what kind of data we accept and being a lot more open to the changes of that data. Because effectively, only the transformation needs to know about the structure of that JSON and that can quite easily be changed. So the fact that you could store JSON almost natively and the performance was near real, it was near um, nearly the same as querying the data of a raw table, like that was a massive benefit for us. So to answer your question then, so on top of that, the integrity side of things is we've got capabilities within our platform, which DBT also provides, to do data presence checks and data quality checks. So I think one of those very difficult things to do within a data space, and I think a few people have managed to achieve this, but it comes with massive trade-offs, 
is the ability to run a well-tested environment within data. You know, it's very difficult to kind of create a UAT version of your data platform simply because that more often than none means you need to replicate the data to truly identify any potential problems or issues or anything along those lines, which is a very expensive thing to do because naturally your data platforms are quite expensive things to operate and run. So what you then tend to do is just rely a lot more on testing within your live environments. And to do that, we've got data presence checks, which will run on the raw data quite often. So if we expect the data to be there, the check runs, the data isn't there, that's typically where we'll raise alerts and stuff. And then we also have data quality checks. So this is where we'll run over samples of the data and check whether there's any discrepancies, whether there's variances that are outside of our expected thresholds, and then we'll do alerting based on that. So considering where we are right now and you know the, the next few steps where you want to move the data, uh, data platform towards, um, I mean, of course, I'm aware that, you know, in a year, in two years, things keep changing and like the, the goal line, of course, moves. But what would your what would your ideal scenario look like? When would you think like, yeah, this is where I'm happy with what we set out originally and now we, you know, see what the next step for the bigger future is? Cool. The um, so when we started this when we started this project, we we broke it down into two distinct phases, right? I think phase one was pretty much to get to feature parity as to where we were before, and what that fundamentally represented was building out a new core fundamental data platform. So you know, rethinking all of the ingestion, the transformation, and the outputs, and then building reporting capabilities on top of that, which pretty much got us to a point where we're at a few months ago, which is you know we can do a lot of our operational reporting, and we've got a solid data platform in place. A lot of the reasoning behind how we built this data platform was to kind of set us up for phase two. And when we think about phase two, this is where we think about some of the more sophisticated sophisticated capabilities we're looking to support, right? If I think about some of the stuff that we've got, you know, that we, we're talking about right now that we've started building our capabilities around, it's real-time ingestion, you know, of our data. We're moving from a monolithic system towards a distributed system. That distributed system is now heavily reliant on messaging and events that are you know, being sent via the various different components. And typically the data contained within those events is a wealth of information that we want to leverage. You know, we no longer have all, our, have all our data sitting in one place, which is a big monolithic database. It's now going to be contained with this event ecosystem. And we want to be able to take advantage of that. And we want to be able to query on that in a near real-time fashion. So what we're working on at the moment is something that automatically plugs, plugs into our entire distributed ecosystem um, listens in on all of these events, absorbs, you know, ingests them, and then based on the data or the sensitivity, et cetera, stores them in various different places. But it does this in a fashion that it's, you know, it's adaptive to change. And if event gets raised, the analyst should be able to query that data within a few seconds, if not minutes. You know, we want to get that, that feedback loop down to minutes, essentially. Um, so that's one thing we're working on at the moment, which I think we're probably looking to have done within the next couple of months, which is really exciting. Some of the other stuff we're thinking about is machine learning capabilities. So right now, our machine learning capabilities are very much still based on our legacy capabilities. I think we've got about five or six core you know, ML models that the business leverages quite heavily. What we'd like to do is build out an ML scale type pipeline. So we create a productionized version of the pipeline that allows you to deploy these ML models. You can inject, you know, pull data from the data pipeline as needed or from the data platform as needed you know, analyze the data, produce an output, and that output gets sent back to the data platform. So it kind of becomes, a, you know, a, it reinforces itself effectively. We want to be able to do that because I think there's a lot more MLs, ML capabilities we could 
leverage at Moonpig, but we just don't yet have the kind of infrastructure to support that. So by building out this pipeline, we then enable the data scientists to focus more on the models rather than the infrastructure supporting that. So that's one of the initiatives which we're exploring at the moment, which again, we're also very excited about. And the last one, which I think I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, is the schema inference side of things. So when we talk about schema inference right now, when a new payload comes in or when a data comes in and it's an evolution of a previous existing schema, that's a very manual process in terms of having to update the transform and you know notify the team that, hey, this scheme has changed from version eight to version, sorry, from version one to version 1.1. We want to build in mechanisms to automatically detect that change and then downstream be able to expose that data in a meaningful way. So having some kind of schema registry where you can see the current version, compare the payload, and then increment the version if needed is one of the features we're currently exploring. That's awesome. Sounds like you've uh, you've got some very interesting and exciting months ahead. Yeah, there's, there's a ton to do in this space. I think we're finally in a position now where we've managed to hire a full team. So I think hiring in this space has been very challenging. It's a very demanding space. It's a very unique set of skills we're looking for. Um, and I think we're at a stage now where we've actually got a full team pending one vacancy. Um, so I'm really excited to see what the team does over the next six months. I think there's there's a huge amount um, there's a huge amount still to do, and I think the benefit that we can drive is just massive. So really excited. Great. Is there um is there sort of one main tip that you'd give out to someone who's looking at starting building out their own data platform capability? Um, yes, I think probably my biggest probably my biggest tip in the space would be to buy versus build, right? Like it always comes down to that fundamental question. I think when you're talking about data, it's one of those things I probably always lean towards buying versus building. I think when you're talking about your core warehousing capabilities, when you're talking about your ingestion, when you talk about transforms, explore as many buy possibilities out there as possible because I don't necessarily think that's where you get to leverage the most of your engineering capability. I think the sophisticated capabilities we were talking about, the phase two type stuff, that's where you should use your engineering capacity. So when it comes to kind of thinking about a data platform, buy as much as you can to get the fundamental core in place. And then once that's ready, then you start kind of building the capabilities on top of that. So I'd probably index towards the buy side of things quite heavily. Yeah, oh yeah that's great advice. Thank you so much for taking your time to chat to us today. No worries. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs> Well, it was really lovely. Thank you. Um, and yeah, thank you, dear listeners. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, as always, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. And if you have any feedback or any questions, please feel free to message us on at Moonpeak Tech. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers all. Moon.